Welcome to the Climate Chronicles podcast by SkySpecs, the show where we explore the latest wind and renewable energy trends, industry expertise, and best practices that can help us deliver the most efficient energy generation in the world. Let's jump into the latest episode. Welcome once again to SkySpecs Climate Chronicles podcast, where we explore some of today's biggest issues facing the renewable energy industry. I'm Sarah Light, Head of Marketing here at SkySpecs, and today we have some amazing guests. One of uh, some of my favorite folks from across the pond, our COO, Ray O'Neill, and VP of Product Management, John Harney. Both Ray and John are founders of Covey, one of the companies that joined SkySpecs last year, uh, which is now Horizon Finance. Welcome, Ray and John. All right. First question. John, this one's for you. First, for our listeners um, who don't know what Horizon Finance is or what it does, let's start there. Can you explain it a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, Horizon Finance, it's a cloud-based financial asset management system uh, built from the ground up specifically for renewable energy and and built by professionals uh, from the renewable energy sector. Uh, What it does is it essentially automates the financial transaction processing and it streamlines key sector-specific workflows um, throughout the full asset lifecycle. So from pre-development, through to construction, through to operations. So you think of Horizon Finance, it's a single solution to run all your financial and commercial asset management processes, which is capable of replacing not only your existing point solutions, but also your manual workarounds and Excel spreadsheets. Thanks for explaining that. Ray, so I, I want you to explain maybe a little bit more. Um, can you help me explain, maybe paint the picture of why it's so important for the the overall SkySpec story? Sure. Uh, well, while the industry is maturing, um, the systems uh, that we're using are getting better and better and more specialized. And the reason why Horizon Finance is so important is it enables customers to prioritize their activity based on sound financial data, which has been lacking in the industry to date. It also helps customers forecast their cash position, which gives them and their investors comfort. Uh, It helps customers keep costs down uh, by enabling benchmarking, and it helps simplify our customers' workflows and enables them to scale quickly with confidence. All right, great. Um, So now that we have some context, uh, let's dive into the meat of what we're going to talk about today. So uh, a little bit of background. Um, Recently, SkySpec partnered with a word about wind to discuss some of the challenges that are facing the industry. Um, we had a discussion with some leaders in a boardroom discussion and some of the issues that were discussed were inflation, energy prices, uh, long-term service contracts and supply chain challenges. But today I'd like to dig into um, some of the the deeper issues and add some additional questions I, I still had after that the, that boardroom discussion. Um, does that work for both of you? Yep, of course. Sound good? All right. So, Ray, this one's for you. And and John, feel free to jump in. When, you, when either, either time I ask you guys questions, feel free to jump in at, after each other. Um, but, Ray, do developers and owners of operating assets face different challenges in terms of managing their assets, resourcing, and, and risk? Yeah, well, the, the short and sweet of it is they do. Uh, they're They're quite different and they have different challenges. So, Developers um, really are interested in deployment of funds. So they take investment from uh, different types of investors. They create maybe a a pool of of cash 
and they, they need to deploy those funds into uh, projects that hopefully one day will mature into um, assets, so operating assets. So what they're really interested in is being able to report back to investors of how they're deploying that fund, uh, the funds and giving those investors confidence that they're deploying it in the right way and accounting for it in the right way. They don't have any revenue yet because the, the projects are, are pre-revenue, they're pre-construction. Um, there's no need for cash forecasting. They're really interested in keeping their teams really lean. So they have a small number of expert developers who want to focus most of their time on developing assets. So anything they can do to outsource financial control or financial processes uh, and get systems in place that will help them uh, strip away the time and enable them to focus on development is good for them. On the other hand, operators uh, have faced a different challenge, especially as the portfolios grow. They're interested in consistency of financial data, aggregation of financial data, being able to report to the investors on the operation and operational performance of the assets. They're really interested in cash forecasting and been able to kind of tell a story around how much cash coverage there is to the investors, again, to give confidence and compliance as well, the boring subject of compliance. So, yep, they're, they're in two different camps and uh, we cater for both, obviously. Then I have another question for you then, John. Um, what kind of needs do developers have and what role will technology play in meeting those needs? Yeah, so I think um, for developers, it kind of largely depends on the on the project phase and, and where the project is at in the life cycle. So during the early development, uh, what we typically see is developers who incubate projects into what we call development companies or or dev codes. Uh, at this key stage, the ability they need the ability to slice and dice data across uh, their development uh, portfolio maybe by technology type or by location, so that they're able to see and understand how much resource is being allocated to each project. Uh, and they can make decisions based on that. So whether to move forward a project or, or whether to, to, to stop a project uh, dead in its tracks. Uh, so that kind of information at the very early stage, this ability to slice and dice is key. As those projects kind of move through to construction phase, um, they get flipped out into their own companies or what we call SPVs. And then the complexities start to increase exponentially, and particularly when you're managing multiple construction projects at the same time. So at this stage, projects are busy from an invoice and a payment approvals perspective. Uh, so having a centralized workflow for all purchase orders, invoices, budget tracking, payment runs, et cetera, allows you to have this kind of key oversight uh, on, that, on that critical process. Um, another point is that developers are constantly trying to understand, are my projects on time? Are my projects on budget? So tools like earned value analysis uh, allow uh, developers to answer these questions easily. Uh, they also understand that uh, contingency needs to be tracked uh, very, very careful, carefully, not just in a historical sense, uh, but also potential future contingency hits uh, so that cost overruns can be uh, managed effectively. And in the construction phase, also lender reporting uh, starts to increase. So typically lenders will require at least one report per month uh, from, the from the financial asset manager. Um, and having that report uh, ready to hand available in a centralized platform is key. Also managing utilizations or drawdowns from that lender on a monthly basis and having that in a centralized platform will really help uh, with the audit trail and the flow of information and keeping that kind of workflow out of Excel and emails and really 
getting the data from that project brought together so that if there is an eventual sale, that all of that data is in one place and centrally managed. Um, and as they transition through from development uh, to construction, we do see a huge increase in contract data. So you know everything from leases to construction contracts, et cetera, all start to flow through. And being able to annotate and, and bookmark that data uh, and create tasks against uh, the contracts is key. So you, you don't want to miss an option payment, uh, for example, when you're um, when you're when you're at that phase of the project or, or a key milestone under a contract that could lead to additional costs, or it could even lead to the to the project being uh, effectively in default or, or 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 worse. So these are kind of some of the key things I think that the developers need. Uh, and certainly there is te- there's there's technology there to to help the developers in in managing those needs. Awesome. Thanks for explaining that. Um, so John, then on the other side of things, what kind of needs do asset owners have, especially those with large portfolios, potentially across many jurisdictions, and how could technology help them? Yeah, so typically we see that you know as this scramble for for assets continues, that um, asset owners are looking further afield to purchase uh, purchase assets. Um, how that's typically managed today is if they buy an asset in Spain, they will uh, mandate a financial asset manager to manage that asset in Spain. Um, that continues on, so they buy in Italy, Germany, etc., and it's, it it becomes this uh, entanglement of different disparate systems and different uh, tax and compliance issues across the portfolio. So typically, what happens is the data will flow through into the middle office. Uh, it will be in a non-standardized way, and it'll be up to the middle office to sort of bring that uh, together by smashing Excel sheets and trying to get some uh, decent reporting out the other end. So technology, if we can deploy one single technology solutions across multiple jurisdictions, we can standardize all of that data, bring all of that data together in one place on the cloud, make it easier to consolidate and aggregate that data, make it easier to report to investors. Um, We can also introduce some technology on the tax and compliance side to allow for a uniform application of all of the tax and compliance rules uh, across different jurisdictions. Um, And and that should really help uh, the asset owners to go confident in terms of uh, purchasing assets outside of their original jurisdictions. Great. That was really helpful. Ray, do you have anything else to add there? No. Okay. (laughs) No, he got it all. Perfect. John nailed that one. Boom. Boom. Awesome. well, then, Ray, one of the things in, in the boardroom conversation and then the, the white paper after that, uh, it was like lightly covered about the differences you see between Europe practices and U.S. practices and, and the differences between those. Um, would you mind going in a, a little bit deeper there and what the differences are? Yeah, no problem. Uh, I mean, the main differences you see between the U.S. and Europe, uh, one is scale. So the projects or the, uh, the assets and the number of turbines per asset uh, tend to be larger in the US. So that's number one. Number two, uh, you see that uh, there is a trend in Europe around taking longer term OEM warranties. So the research suggests that people have moved from 10 years to 15 years uh, to 20 years, and the trend is now getting higher and higher and higher. Um, uh, While in the US, we see that uh, OEM warranties are still relatively short term. So you got to unpick that and say, well, why is that happening? 
And it's happening maybe for a couple of reasons. But one of the main drivers is the capital stack. Uh, so who's funding these projects and in what proportion? So in Europe, you see a trend towards project finance. So uh, the banks essentially provide project finance or debt finance to, the, to finance the projects, uh, maybe up to 80, 85% of the project. Um, and like uh, being a former banker, uh, what banks are interested in is making their return and then covering their downside risk. So in covering their downside risk, they will mandate longer term OEM warranties. So especially if their debt term is pushing, getting pushed out over the 15 years, maybe to the 20 years. So a tail maybe uh, on the 15 year kind of typical PPA period. So that that is driving these longer term OEM warranties. Secondly, um, in uh, the capital, the equivalent capital stack in the US is made up of tax equity. So it's nearly the inverse capital stack. It's equity is the dominant uh, financer of projects. And that equity kind of flips out after seven or eight years. Um, so the OEM warranties that the owners take uh, as a result are shorter term. And the larger utilities in the US have a preference uh, to keep the margin for themselves because these OEM warranties ratchet up in terms of their cost over the years and the risk profile increases. But the large utilities tend to take that risk on their own balance sheet and have very specialist teams uh, around blades or gearbox or drivetrain uh, and maintenance. And they take on that risk themselves and then therefore they keep that margin themselves. So uh, in summary, we see that the scale is different. The appetite to take on risk is different. Um, and I think some of the interesting things in the boardroom discussion was around that trend in Europe, around the OEM warranties being pushed out longer and longer. And we do see signs that some of the larger entities in Europe are now reverting to the US model because striking up a five-year OEM warranty with an option to extend is giving them much more purchasing power and potentially they're keeping more margin or they're stripping down the OEM warranty to just the bare bones where their perceived risk is and they're taking the rest of the risk on their own balance sheet or potentially getting insurance products to cover that. So it's a very interesting area and it, it does highlight there's a quite a different uh, market in the US compared to Europe. Thanks, that was really helpful. That was explaining it a lot better than I think we covered in the, in the boardroom conversation. Um, then, then John, I think this next question is for you. Um, how mature do you think the renewable energy industry is when it comes to financial asset management and what can we learn from other industries and how to apply to this one? Yeah. So I think if we take maturity as a curve, um, where one end of the scale looks at financial asset management as a kind of a cost center, uh, and then the other end is, is a value center. I think, uh, truthfully, it still kind of leans towards the, the cost center today. Um, and in that respect, I would say renewable energy in the finance terms is still very much in its infancy stage. Um, and we kind of, again, have to look at that and say, why, why do we think that is? Well, well, in general, uh, financial asset management uh, at the moment suffers from low margins. There is this kind of race to the bottom, I guess, and we haven't still bottomed out um, on what the key aspects of, of financial asset management should cover. And in that respect, then I think we have low margins, but we also have very much a mixed bag in terms of customer satisfaction. Um, I think this is driven largely by an industry where the, the real focus is still on technical asset management uh, rather than financial. And I think this can mean that resources are, are not being applied uh, to fix the problems currently faced by finance professionals in this space. And as portfolio, portfolios grow, 
I think it's clear that uh, financial asset management today will not scale unless we kind of apply a lot more resource and a lot more effort into uh, understanding what where we're going to be in 5, 10, 15 years time. So, you know, giving you some examples in, in the US, uh, as Ray alluded to, where O&M is, is largely carried out by IPPs and utilities rather than OEMs, uh, we're still seeing a situation where asset owners can't definitively pinpoint how much they're spending on O&M uh, on a turbine or inverter level basis and therefore can't understand what the return on investment is for those maintenance repairs. And likewise, in Europe, a lot of the a lot of financial asset management is driven by the fact that costs and revenues are locked down and therefore financial asset management is still very much focused on historic reporting and compliance reporting. Forecasting is there, uh, but it's typically weak and it's not dynamic in nature. Um, so I think this is changing. I think more and more we're seeing merchant projects entering into the into the frame. We're seeing diversification of revenue streams with co-location, so battery uh, and power to X. So it, it the landscape is changing. Uh, financial asset management is still very much stuck in that kind of you know historic reporting uh, framework, but it needs to change. And I think as the industry and technology matures, we will see that shift in financial asset management from this cost center type approach to this value center. And I think once we see that, interesting things will happen. And we, we, we can look to other industries like aircraft leasing and like commercial real estate and see where you know, financial products have started to pop up based on the detailed data that has been captured uh, underneath. And uh, particularly in terms of kind of the projected data uh, from the industry. Um, yeah, John, I think you touched on an interesting point there is that one of the bigger, big drivers in the financial model for a renewable energy asset is the cost of funds. If you can bring down the cost of funds, your return goes up. Simple as that. So how does cost of funds come down? How is it actually measured? Well, it's measured based on, the, some of it is measured based on the perceived risk within a project. Um, and then when you dig under the hood at the perceived risk of a project, uh, it comes down to transparency, uh, understanding that cash flow and, and what that ca- what risk and what impact what could impact that cash flow. So, if you can create the let's call it the financial platform of the future, where transparency around that cash flow and the risk of that cash flow is very high, we should see uh, new types of products in the market, which creates more liquidity, which should bring down the overall cost of funds. So the prize here is very very big. It's bring down the cost of funds, which automatically will increase. Uh, the valuation of the projects. So who wouldn't want that? But it, it requires technology, requires this dynamic kind of financial platform and more accurate forecasting to a standard that investors will accept. And we we see that in commercial property and we see it in maybe aircraft leasing as well, that these kind of products exist, but they don't exist in the renewable energy uh, sector. Largely because, as John said, on the curve at the moment, it's a, it's a relatively immature industry. We're still quite a young industry. And... Um, the, the, one of the big problems at the moment is a, a supply problem. We just don't have enough projects. Uh, but I think as we have we settle that out and we get uh, more mature and specialized systems, we will start to have a liquidity problem. And that liquidity problem then can be solved by technology. So, so when you guys are talking about the industry as a whole being in its infancy, um, what mistakes are you seeing just in the industry when it comes to creating the asset management platforms? 
maybe I'll, I'll start yeah. with that, John. Maybe you can, yeah, I'll, I'll give a, a go at it. The uh, I mean, one one thing we've seen in the past is that um, at some point, uh, asset owners decide that they will have develop a business intelligence or BI project internally. They will try and stitch together their budgeting system with their payment system, with their accounting platform, with uh, potentially uh, information from the market, and they will put some money aside and get some consultants in and try and build this uh, BI project because they're trying to get answers uh, from their existing data. Um, and we see we see people try to uh, approach it and, and, and by and large, they, they get 50, 60% of the way there, but they never get 100% of the way there. And it takes a lot longer in terms of time, a lot more money than they ever expected. And they still don't get a lot of the answers that they set out to get. Uh, largely because a lot of the projects suffer from two things. One is garbage in, garbage out. The root data is not clean, consistent. Uh, and so as it flows through these processes, it, it creates a kind of a noise which uh, reduces the confidence in the answers. And I think the second thing is it's the, it's the lack of appreciation that these disparate systems don't talk a similar language. And even if you put a translator in the middle to help them translate, it's still imperfect. So that creates noise in the system as well. And when you combine the kind of garbage in, garbage out approach, plus the noise of the translation, you get pretty much, uh, you know, very, very noisy answers. And then confidence level goes down and then the project's abandoned. So we see a pattern of companies trying to do this. And to rectify that pattern, people need to, one, appreciate there is a problem and it's difficult to do, and then look for systems that, uh, solve the garbage in, garbage out problem, but also don't need the translation. Uh, they're kind of native to each other and they can speak the same language. And if the people can, if uh, asset owners can do that, they'll be much better off than trying to do their own bespoke BI projects. Uh, would you agree with that, John? Yeah, totally. And actually would follow on uh, with a very kind of similar related point. Uh, we see in the market where uh, typically, when asked when asset owners look to purchase projects that are either you know early stage or going through construction, uh, the developer of that project will look to hold on to the asset management, which is fine in itself. Uh, the you know that the developer will have some good insights uh, into the project and will typically have those skills in house to manage the project uh, going forward. Where I see an issue is that uh, in their kind of I suppose quest to build more assets under management. And they sometimes neglect to uh, focus on the agreements that they're signing up to. Um, and in that case, in, in terms of trying to get their, their own software, their own processes, their own outcomes into the mix, uh, they sign up to an agreement, which essentially, you know, it's the, the tail wagging the dog or the asset manager is really dictating what the outputs are going to be, what systems are going to be used. Um, and, and then to Ray's point, uh, it becomes even more difficult to tie all of this uh, together if you don't have sort of the autonomy around what systems are being used and what processes are being used, et cetera. So I think, yeah, there's a, there's, there's, there's a lot there in terms of, of trying to tie, tie everything together and, and make sure that the, the data is, uh, is, is all connected. So, so Ray, this question is for you then to kind of, to, to, to dive deeper into some of these questions. Um, what do you think is the key to success for asset owners, especially those who want to grow their assets under management? Yeah, I think there's kind of three main buckets. Uh, obviously, it's the people, there's the processes and the tools, and then the combination of those three. So let's unpick the three buckets. People. Um, the main point around people is specialism. Uh, so 
In the industry now, because it's maturing and the volumes are getting better, there is specialists out there who can help you. So at the project origination stage, you know, more and more people are going to uh, a lawyer who is specialized in renewable energy, M&A, for example. Likewise, when it comes to financial asset management or technical asset management, it, you know, it pays to go with a specialist, someone who's doing financial asset management for wind and solar farms, maybe in multi-jurisdictions, it, it pays to go with someone like that over a generic accountant for a number of reasons. One is they're doing it every day, so they see all the, the, the uh, issues and maybe optimization that can be made. Uh, two, they can provide um, support in terms of consultancy and how to structure things. Um, and three, they should have some economies of, of scale because they're a specialist and they're doing it every day as well. Uh, the second one then is tools. Um, so the, the incumbent uh, and most often used tool in the industry is Excel. Uh, it is the go-to fallback position for every accountant in the world. And that's okay uh, because in certain parts of the process, Excel is the right tool. It is flexible. It's dynamic. Um, and especially in the early parts of a process where maybe you're doing an M&A model and you need to share it with people, it's, it's a good tool. Um, but as you get into, um, you know, asset ownership and development and, and further on, it becomes a tool that's too open, uh, no audit trail, uh, suffers corruption and errors uh, in the formula. And, you know, it isn't the right tool at that point. So at that point, companies, asset owners should adopt a specialist tool. There's many accounting packages on the market at the moment, and uh, they're, all, they're, they're very good, but they're not specialized in renewable energy. So, uh, for example, they're P&L based and not cash based. They, are, they have high switching costs when you have a high volume of SPVs, uh, and they, they don't ingest SCADA data and work out revenue in the way you might need it. So they have a multitude of... Um, problems when it comes to specializing in renewable energy assets. Uh, and therefore, people adopt Excel to, to do the workarounds, which increases the workload. So again, uh, not just for financial asset management, for every part of the renewable energy management, uh, for every part of renewable energy management, a specialist tool could be adopted. The third one then is processes. And this is the big hidden kind of, I would say, optimization that asset, asset owners neglect, but could make if they, they choose to. So the, the tools and the people are only as good as the process that they were, are within. So the consistency and the scalability and design of those processes is key. And it requires considerable thinking and effort to uh, address, especially before the asset owners become too big. Because once you're at scale, those uh, poor processes uh, are, will, will highlight and create a lot of inefficiency and a lot more cost as a result. So if I was to round this off, I'd say at a certain point, whether it's developers or asset owners need to think about their platform. So the people, the tools, the processes, and work a combination of those together such that they set something up that's scalable. And when they do that, the benefits will be huge. It'll be reduction in cost. It'll be increased uh, amount of clean data, which they'll be able to make better decisions on. And that's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because that's what investors love. They love a scalable platform that they can deploy more money into and grow with confidence. Awesome. Thanks for explaining that a little bit more. Um, I'm going to switch these questions around because I think it might be better to end with the what additional challenges are you facing in the industry, but just as a heads up. Um, all right, next question. This is one is for you, John. 
how can you see fund and uh, how can fund and owner operators use technology and data to get better financial outcomes? Yeah, so there's there's lots of ways uh, which technology can be deployed uh, to get a, a, a better financial outcome for, for asset owners. Um, we see areas like uh, benchmarking, particularly around contracts and around uh, P&L or, or, or financial benchmarking, which will bring huge value to, pro- to, to, to asset owners in order to fully understand where they rank um, in terms of, you know, in terms of their projects. So, for example, if you have all of your contract data, uh, you can you can figure out ways to annotate that data and compare across uh, your peers. You can see, you know, are, are my commercial terms up to the standard for the size of, of project? Uh, are my commercial terms up to standard with the OEM that I've gone with versus versus others in the in the market? Uh, so benchmarking becomes hugely, hugely powerful. Uh, it also is powerful in terms of being able to understand your relative costs, uh, your relative operating costs to your peers. And so I think I think benchmarking is one one key area where um, asset owners can can certainly drive uh, use data and get better financial outcomes. Um, we've also started looking internally at uh, transaction transaction level data uh, and understanding what data science can bring in terms of understanding the risk of that financial data. So, for example, if we have a fund who has 30 outsourced uh, partners or outsourced accountants, and they have um, all of this transactional data coming in on a monthly or a quarterly basis. What they want to understand quickly is where are the risks in this data? Uh, can you tell me where the standard deviation is from one month to the next in terms of PL data? Can you tell me uh, are transactions being processed late at night or, or right up to the service level agreement date? So the date at which uh, the vendor was due to share the financial information with the asset owner. So they can under, start to paint a picture of where the risks are uh, in this data uh, and get a much better uh, idea of where to zero in, in in their reviews. We can also use data to sort of benchmark revenue and ensure that revenue is in line with expectations or costs are in line with expectations. So there's a huge amount of benefit we can give to reviewers of financial information, particularly those who need to review large numbers of entities on a monthly or quarterly basis. I, I think that's key there. If we can, if we can unlock the power within the, of, of the data within financial transactions, I think we can make uh, huge inroads into the scalability um, of, of renewable energy. Have you anything to add there, Ray? Well, I was just thinking there, John, about the, you know, the industry cloud, back to the earlier point about different specialized systems talking to each other. Uh, what we don't have in the industry is a kind of a, the ability to plug and play different systems. So the holy grail here would be your trading system, your op system, finance system is able to speak to each other in real time to optimize your outcome. Um, and to date, we haven't got that. So... I think that's where technology is going to go towards an industry cloud where you can plug and play different specialist systems together uh, that will talk to each other in real time to optimize your specific scenarios uh, and increase your return on investment. All right. Well, one of my uh, last questions for you guys, well, I guess this is the last question. Um, What additional challenges are you seeing in the industry and... um, what shining stars or, or hope do you see there is to 
not just challenges. I don't want to end like on a low point too. Like not just challenges, but do you see any hope uh, out there too? Yeah, I think in terms of just purely from a financial asset management perspective, I think uh, the ability to scale is the key challenge. I mean, if we can crack the ability to scale, then everything else becomes uh, will fall in line. Um, and I think in order to scale, uh, in my opinion. Uh, getting to a, a place where we have real-time, what we call in accounting terms, uh, continuous close uh, is the holy grail. And continuous close in and of itself is important uh, because it, it, it enables that scale, but it's actually everything that needs to be done to get you to continuous close is where the real benefits lie. So I'll give you an example. In order to get to continuous close, and by continuous close, I mean the financial statements are closed every day uh, rather than closing it every month. In order to get to that uh, place, you need really, really high levels of automation. Um, and by having high levels of automation, uh, that leads to fewer errors, uh, greater standardization across the portfolio. So all of a sudden you've unlocked another two problems by having this automation. And then by having better quality data, that will allow for benchmarking, as we described, because you'll have much more standardization and it will cut down considerably on the review times and the costs involved in the whole financial asset management process. Um, so also standardization, if you compare standardization, for example, with rolling budgets, you could allow organizations uh, to unlock live valuations and it, it all, all, to, all of a sudden, the whole thing becomes a hell of a lot more scalable. Uh, we also kind of see softer benefits to continuous close, which would include kind of better employee satisfaction. So, so currently you kind of have this, you know, I won't call it a lull period, but it's where, where they're less busy. Uh, and then all of a sudden kind of day minus one. So one month before the day, the month end or two months before the month end, it starts to spike up considerably. And you can only scale uh, with as many people as you could fit into that 10-day process to get that work done before the, uh, before the accounts need to roll off the system. If you can continuously close, then that work is spread out more evenly across the month. So the employees are obviously happier. Their, their work is more consistent. But then if you take that one step further and you say, well, if I have to review all of those counts at one end of the month, then that's a problem. But if I can review a batch on the 5th, a batch on the 10th, a batch on the, on the 15th, a batch on the 20th, and then a batch at the month's end, that becomes a lot easier. And then the middle office or the people who are reviewing the accounts, uh, it becomes much easier for them to manage and their confidence levels goes, goes up because the data has become standardized. So I think, I think continuous close and everything it takes to get to continuous close will really unlock the scalability um, of financial asset management, but it will also unlock much better quality data uh, that we can use for lots of more interesting things and, and products in the future. How close do you think we are to continuous close? I think a lot of organizations talk about it, um, but renewables has a, a unique, some unique features that allows it to unlock it a lot quicker. Uh, so mm -hmm. renewables tend to be highly contract-based uh, so it's 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 possible to codify all of the contracts, um, and as Ray alluded to earlier on, to to ha to mix your SCADA data with your you know contract data and generate uh, journals, so revenue journals, cost journals, etc. So it is much more possible in renewables than it is in a lot of other industries. So I think we're 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 a hell of a lot closer 
in terms of being able to enable uh, real-time close. And John, I think there's hope. Yeah. I also think the, the, the playbook for financials or the playbook for running a renewable energy plant is starting to take some shape. I mean, what we've seen in the past is that, you know, different individuals within organizations knew things, um, probably had deep expertise in certain places, but the tools weren't there. And that information didn't get disseminated across the asset owners full kind of organization. But this playbook of how to run a wind farm or a solar farm to optimize for the outcomes that the asset owner wants, whether it's lifetime or income or return on investment, et cetera. So that's starting to take shape. Finance is a big part of that and a bigger part than most people think, but also the health of the assets. So preventative maintenance, the, the trading of the assets, the uh, uh, working all the contracts and compliance and all the different areas, that's all starting to kind of solidify and the playbooks are starting to develop. So I think within this great hope, I think within the next two or three years that these playbooks will uh, be written down, they'll be defined and we'll start getting into the optimization phase, which I think the industry desperately needs in order to bring it onto the next level. So with huge investment coming into the sector, offshore wind, larger uh, solar plants, battery trading, uh, gen um, or hydrogen type plays, we're going to need this playbook and we're going to need it refined even more and more and more because the investment needs it and the confidence level of the investors needs this playbook to solidify. So I'm pretty hopeful that we will see uh, much more sophisticated management of these assets and that will drive investment into the sector as well. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for asking or answering all my questions today. Um, I've really appreciated it. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to all your answers. Thanks again. No problem, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Climate Chronicles brought to you by SkySpecs. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to our podcast so you can be the first to know when we release the latest episodes. If you really liked it, make sure to give us a five-star review. See you next time.